Lila June is an indigenous public speaker, artist, scholar, and community organizer of the Dine Setsahetsahiyas. Successes. <laughs> did I say that? Can you actually just pronounce it? So just so yeah, I... it's successes. Successes. Yeah. Okay. That's very close. Yep. Um, okay. Thank you. Um, and also European lineages from Taos, New Mexico. She uses performance mediums to convey messages about indigenous rights and healing intergenerational and intercultural trauma. Her perspective is shaped by her undergraduate studies in human ecology at Stanford graduate studies in Native American pedagogy at the University of New Mexico and her childhood. Here at Raise Green, we believe that social justice is key to environmental justice. The green movement of the past has historically excluded marginalized communities, especially the diverse voices of indigenous communities. We are committed to helping ensure that the future is different. We're excited to hear Lila June's insights today. So my first question, Lila. Yeah. You're an incredibly talented poet, songwriter, speaker, and artist. What drew you to performance mediums as the main vessel for your advocacy? Um, well, I started out as a spoken word poet when I was 14. I'm 32 now, so I've been writing poetry and doing hip hop and all that for quite a while. And I don't know, I just, I love art and I can't stop making it even when I try to stop or take a break. I just, it, I just always a song in my head. There's always a poem that like pops into my head and I just, I can't not make music um, or write poetry. Yeah, and then the poetry just kind of morphed into music. You know, I play guitar since I was like 10. So, you know, it's just, it's just, I think Native people, as Indigenous people, we just always have something we want to share with the world because we've been silenced so long. And so, yeah, like, it's just a good medium to, to, to say what I need to say. Uh, and there's so much education that needs to happen because the world is profoundly ignorant about Indigenous history, culture, issues, solutions, all of it. And so it's just a good medium to get people thinking. Yeah, beautiful. Um, I think uh, that irresistible, like undeniable force um, inside all of us to create art is really wonderful. And I think often suppressed by all sorts of structures that exist. And often it's like, so what happens if we make the world a better place? What are we going to do, right? We're going to make art um, and music and poetry. So it's, it's good to do that now and not wait. Yeah, and I think we'll be writing music even as we wait for the world to get become a better place, because that is what drives the world to become a better place is our art and our music and our our continued attempts at at, at crafting culture and, and shifting narratives. Yeah, I totally agree. If it's if it's one thing that's gonna save us, it's art. So all of, all about that. And in your research paper, Nature and the Supernatural, the role of culture and spirituality in sustaining primate populations in Manu National Park, Peru. You touch on some of your personal spiritual beliefs and how they shape your relationship with nature. 
Along those lines, do you mind giving us some insight on how the spiritual traditions you grew up with and the ones that you've learned about in your research have shaped what sustainability means to you? Yeah, that paper was a, a, a research paper I wrote as a sophomore in Stanford for a human ecology class. And um, I won the, the John Milton Oskison Writing Award for that class, or rather for that research paper. And that was a really fun paper to write. And it was really talking about how, you know, the Matsuginka people who are the original indigenous peoples of this, this place in Peru actually sustained primate populations. They sustained the monkey, the various primate populations with their, um, with their spiritual beliefs, like everything from, you know, if you're, if you're a newly married uh, or rather a new parent of a child, you can't hunt monkeys for like six months or something. Or you don't want to hunt the howler monkey because the howler monkey, you will ingest not only their meat, but you'll ingest their characteristics. That's, you know, being slow and uh, lethargic. So there was all these interesting cultural, I want to say taboos and spiritual beliefs. They also said, you know, you can't hunt the monkey populations with guns because it will offend the spirits of the forest. And so obviously that curbed the uh, amount of monkeys that were um, hunted because they wouldn't use guns. Um, but yeah, this proved that, you know, indigenous peoples have built in cultural institutions to protect the, the, the lands they live on. And yet the white scientists were saying that they needed to remove the native people from this area to create a national park because the native people were destroying the primate populations. Whereas these white scientists did not understand all of the incredible ways that the Matsuginka people actually were in much needed and essential stewards of that land. And if you remove those stewards, you're, you're toying with something you don't understand. Um, and so for me specifically, to answer your question, my spiritual beliefs, I guess, of course, affect the way I see what we call sustainability. Because, you know, growing up as a, as a Diné woman, but also growing up in the Lakota tradition, and they were very nice to allow me into their ceremonies and to learn their philosophy and going to their sweat lodges and their various summer ceremonies. What they teach you in these philosophies is they teach you that we're all related, you know, mitako oyasin, which means we're all relatives. So they teach you to see every living being as a relative. And I want to try to break that down for the listeners. What does that mean to see everything as a relative? When we say relative, we literally mean like mother, father, brother, cousin, uncle, etc. So like when you see a bug, a, a, an insect crawling, can you see it as your, as your brother, as your mother, as your grandmother, as your grandfather? When you see a horse can you see it, see the horse and treat the horse as if they were your own mother or your own father? So this is how we were trained to see things. And so obviously that changes everything, right? Because you would never saddle up your mother and ride her around and, you know, make her, you would never lasso your grandfather with a, with a rope you know, like they do with the bulls and the bull riding just for sport, you know, you would never do that to your grandfather. So the way we treat animals changes, the way we see plants changes, because even the plants are our relatives. 
even the clouds and the sun and the moon and the stars and the rain and the wind becomes our relative. So um, this is just one example of like thousands I could give that my spiritual upbringing altered the way I see the world. So the other day, you know, like there was a bug in my kitchen and I'm having like a bug problem. And I was, I said, I'm so sorry, relative. I'm so sorry. And I squished it. I, I felt so bad, but I knew that this had to be a place where I could be safe and where I could have, you know, my basic needs. So, but as I did it, I said, I'm so sorry, relative. I'm so sorry, you know, and normally I take them all out of my house, but it's just, I couldn't do that at the time. And so that's just a way of looking at the world, you know, is like seeing things as, as equal to you, you know, and, and there's white supremacy, there's male supremacy, AKA patriarchy, but there's also this thing called human supremacy, this idea that humans are above everything else. We're not, we are their children. We are their brothers. We're their sisters. We're their we're their grandchildren of the animals and the plants. And we must absolutely treat them as if we were their grandchildren. Thank you for breaking that down. I think it's a really powerful perspective shift. That is something really easy for anyone to do is kind of create that thought pattern for themselves. I think it is the human supremacy is, is a very interesting thing. And if it's one thing I've kind of been reflecting on with climate change lately it's that it affects everything humans animals plants it affects everyone equally or not equally but you know simultaneously right and um, it, it's disrupting our connection to each other do you think that the current climate movement is progressing in terms of its inclusion of the perspectives and knowledge systems of indigenous communities That's a really interesting question that's making my mind fire off in a million directions. I want to say something like the fact that we even have to ask that question means that it's not an indigenous movement. You know, it's like the climate justice movement as if it's this predefined, predecided package of a, of a social system is it being inclusive of indigenous peoples? You know, if we even have to ask that question, indigenous peoples are already on the outside. And even though there has been strides, I feel like what you're really asking deep down and, and we might not realize it is you're asking, are white folks listening to indigenous folks basically? And I think that is an interesting question, but why wouldn't we ask, you know, are indigenous folks listening to white folks like why do we start from the white perspective and then move outward from there you know like why don't we start would would another question be are indigenous peoples is their paradigm that we're living in is that including other paradigms what if we started from the indigenous center and moved outward from there but if we're basically saying you know is the climate justice movement inclusive of indigenous peoples it's like built into that question is the assumption that that the climate justice movement exists apart from indigenous peoples when it doesn't and it never has and it never will if not only because we are all inextricably intertwined and every single action that indigenous peoples take affects the whole world 
and vice versa. And so it's like, to me, the quote unquote climate justice movement involves every living being. The question is, are we gonna recognize that or not? It already includes us, it's already included, but are we gonna see that? Do we understand that to be true and move forward from that point? So I don't know if that makes sense, but I feel like the question, is the climate justice movement inclusive of indigenous peoples is like, why were we ever on the outside to begin with? That's, that's the problem. You know, that's, that's where we need to focus is how do we, and when I say we, I mean the world, how do we begin so that our very first step is already in conjunction and under the understanding that there are so many different perspectives and so many different actors and so many different forces already at play. And it's our job to catch up to that, not the other way around. Anyways, I don't know if that makes sense, but that question's a very interesting question. And I think it's very revealing as to how we have, before the game ever starts, we center and prioritize the white movement, if you will, or the white culture, when we talk about this this nebulous concept of, of the climate crisis. Reframing the question is often a very powerful thing. And I want to follow up with that. But I did want to make one comment, which is related to what you were saying earlier, you know, that everything is connected, right? And it's actually super obvious <laughs> if you actually go out into nature and just sit there and watch, right? Um, that everything is connected. And then by saying, hey, is this movement over here connected to this movement over here is kind of overlaying a, a forced you know, separation that really prevents people from even seeing that there is no separation at all. Right. At the beginning of your response, you were kind of mentioning reframing the question from the indigenous perspective as the inner looking outward at this you know, white dominated system, power system in play. Do you want to answer that question as you reframed it? Yeah, for example, indigenous peoples, just in my own friend group and my own network are doing profound food sovereignty projects where they're not only localizing food systems, but they're bringing back endangered foods, endangered seeds, like ancient potatoes, ancient peaches, ancient plums, ancient persimmons that are like almost extinct. And they're building these out. Uh, I have a friend who just purchased 700 acres uh, in Alabama to start a Muscogee language immersion eco-village. Like there's so much in incredible, amazing stuff going on in the indigenous community. And then so my question is like, is, is the world coming into that? Is the world kind of having the humility to step out of their norm, step out of this pervasive belief that the United States of America and the English speaking world is the be all end all and everything else is quote unquote fringe or marginal and, and just kind of putting that away for a little bit and saying, maybe I'm actually stepping on indigenous lands and maybe I'm not hearing what's already going on. Another way to phrase this is like a lot of people think native quote unquote native Americans are a small part of American history, right? We got Black History Month, we got Native History Month, da 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 da, Asian History Month, and that's all encompassed in this larger circle of America. 
right? But what if it was the other way around? What if America was a tiny blip on the screen of indigenous history? Because indigenous peoples, as we've been saying, have been here hundreds of thousands of years, but they did just prove a 21,000 year old footprint in New Mexico recently. We've been here a long time. America is not even 300 years old. It's this tiny flash in the pan of indigenous history. So instead of indigenous people being this little adornment or this little figure in the Legoland of America, what if America was actually a, a small part of the longstanding history that was and still is already going on on this land? Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. I, I, I totally, I think that's the totally proper way to frame it because I think a lot of the solutions um, being proposed to climate are actually being forced into a paradigm of something that's really only exists like 150 years, right? Even you know, since the steam engine was invented, right? And now you're saying, well, we have to solve the uh, climate crisis within the constraints of this system that has only existed you know, for a few hundred years. Right, right. And it's really interesting. Uh, like I was really enjoying your, your is it Time Traveler? Yeah, mm -hmm, the song. I think that there's a real dominance that I see in my work and my experience of basically people just only caring about like the moment they're living in. There's there's a lack of this kind of multi multi generational perspective, and if it is, it's only you know one or two generations, and it's really only kind of directly to your direct nuclear family, at least as it manifests in you know the modern United States paradigm do you mind um, telling us a little bit more about your seven generations new deal uh, what are the core facets and and how how did that come to be yeah the seven generations new deal is a really simple premise it's just what would energy policy look like if it was responsible to the next seven generations to come and I don't think anyone in the political sphere had ever done that. Uh, so last year I was running for office against the Speaker of the House for the state of New Mexico. And he was getting maxed out donations from various oil companies to his speaker fund uh, and also pharmaceutical companies and casinos and what have you. But anyways, so I was really kind of foolishly because I didn't have enough preparation or, or experience, but uh, going head to head with the oil and gas lobby. Um, and I was arguably going to win. And I think I threatened them and they threw every, every dirty trick they had. But basically, I was sort of challenging the status quo of policy, which is just so entrenched in New Mexico, unfortunately, where, you know, oil companies basically, and the utility monopolies have full reign over policy. And I was saying, what if our policy actually reflected the ethic that, you know, we were accountable to the next seven generations to come? What would that look like? And so it was basically a set of agenda items. There were seven items uh, and, and action items we had to take to really embody that accountability to seven generations. Ago. So, for example, um, first and foremost, interestingly, the very, very first action item was removing big money from politics. And what I mean by that is 
campaign donations should not be coming from corporations. And I know everyone says that we've been saying it for years, but we have to keep saying it because it's still happening. And the reason why that's so precarious and dangerous is because these corporations who are designed to only care about the next fiscal quarter, that's what they exist for in this current paradigm, that they become the rulers of our entire world, our entire political structure, our policies, our agreements, our social agreements. And so why on earth and the reason is because the person only gets elected because they have all this money coming in from corporations, right? And then they are beholden to those corporations to make policy that supports those corporations. So now our political leaders are much less servants of the community and much more servants of the corporations who installed them. It's very simple. And so that was step one of the seven generations new deal as we were calling it and you can look at the whole plan it's sgnd.info you can look at the whole seven point plan um and the cool thing about it is you could apply it to any level of government you could apply it to municipal you could apply apply it to state level federal level international um, and it's really meant to be taken and used and adapted by communities to make it their own but it's just articulating like, look, this is what we got to do. If we actually care about the next seven generations, this is what we got to do. And even the very first bullet point, you know, getting big money out of politics is, is a huge, huge project because we're going up against all of it. We're going up against the most powerful, vindictive, I, I want to say cruel, <laughs> not because they're born cruel, but their greed makes them cruel people in the world, you know, that's what we're heading up against if we really want to change that. And we are going to need to keep figuring out how to do that in my generation and possibly the next, hopefully not the next, but we got to do it soon if, if, we, if we want a livable planet. Yeah, the, the fact that, you know, corporations run our government doesn't mean that they really put people first. So, I mean, that fight has been going on, you know, since Citizens United and, and way before that, right? Citizens United just floodgates the current state of the United States government in terms of, yeah. for example, the gridlock we're seeing about all of the beautiful climate policies that are being implemented or trying to be implemented. Um, that stopgap um, or that blockade that's happening is directly a result of, of that money coming in uh, to elect our officials that are supposed to represent the people. Um, so <laughs> 100% agree <laughs> that that's got to be the first thing, because otherwise the scales are just so tipped um, because, you know, you know, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll yeah. stop there. I mean, look, um, do you think he'll run for office again? Or did you have your fill? <laughs> I might. Um they 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 got dirty yeah there was false police supports drummed up about me we finally got the police uh official statement that says yeah this was all fabricated you know a year and a half later but, oh yeah they they went for the jugular it was just absolutely it was it was painful i'm not gonna lie and so yeah i think i could again but i i know now that i need a good team 
people who know what they're doing because I had a lot of wonderful people on my team, but none of us were politically savvy. We didn't know what the heck we were getting into. And I think also like if I did run for office, I would have to make sure that once I get in, the world would let me be who I am and do what I need to do. Uh, and I don't know if that's ever going to happen, to be honest. So a lot of my work, I feel like, is better suited to the non-colonial political world. I feel like, for instance, I, I really want to start a university for Native youth where they can study their own traditional knowledge and get degrees for their own traditional knowledge. And, you know, I want to start a, a, a compound where we could have s service learning projects for Native youth, like, as an Indigenous woman, we have priorities, you know, like we have languages to save from going from extinction, uh, going extinct. I mean, we have people with crazy rates of diabetes approaching 30% of my nation with diabetes. You know, we have people with the median household income on my res is 20 grand. That's the median household income. Many other reservations are way less. You know, can you imagine your the whole household running on 20 grand a year. I bet most of the listeners cannot even imagine that right here in the so-called most advanced country in the world. Uh, you know, so, so I don't necessarily have time to play political games if they're not going to get me anywhere. Um, I have some triage, you know, strategy to do of like, what is our most pressing issue? And to me, that's language loss. That's protecting indigenous women from, the onslaughts that we face every day, that's protecting um, us getting our traditional foods back, that's protecting our water sources. Uh, and I'm not sure those things are, are most effectively completed running for office or being a politician. So, you know, I, I, it, there may be a time when it makes sense for me to run again, um, but I'm not, I'm, I'm not seeing that in the near future. Yeah, powerful reflections. Uh, what you're describing takes a, a certain level of endurance to endure the attacks that come from these tactics that are used and a certain level of, I don't know if megalomania is the right word, but for someone to actually want to be a politician, <laughs> it takes some convincing that themselves that they have a better solution than anyone, everyone else. So I think it's this, this is, kind of self-selects for a certain type of personality. You're absolutely right. Yep. And and I and I agree. I I I admit I I have I have an ego and luckily it it was humbled quite a bit, but you know, my my self-serving ego definitely factored into my decision to run for office. You know, I like I wanted to I wanted I didn't just want it to happen. I wanted to be the one who made it happen, if that makes sense. And I think that politics self-selects for somewhat egotistical people or sometimes very egotistical people and not only that but once you get into it it just strengthens and reinforces that egoism and makes it stronger and more dangerous in my opinion so I'm, I'm kind of grateful that I got humbled and I got my butt kicked because you know that ego is is not going to be conducive to us actually making change in the world and I think it actually gets in the way of a lot of us as, as leaders when we let that uh, take the wheel. Yeah, that, 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 that rings true for me. You know, I have an ego as well. Uh, I think 
just about everyone does and most people live in live in their ego and it's kind of like a cage uh, and I think it's really easy to leave that cage but we aren't <laughs> most people aren't encouraged to do so because when you leave that cage of ego you stop the competitiveness um, and some of the freneticism that's associated with you know the dominant economic system on the planet the um, part of the reason raise green exists is because you know we were tired of waiting for politicians to decide the fate of the planet and big businesses to decide the fate of the planet and really wanted to amplify and encourage the people doing place-based work building systems of resilience um, and trying to actually finance all of that to make happen so i have one more question uh, officially um which is an ask so what can companies like us do to fight these colonial power structures that are embedded in all facets of society including the financial securities markets that we off operate in including the climate movement what can companies like us do to fight these these power structures well first and foremost i think that the way companies like you kind of be a solution rather than part of the problem of, of colonization, et cetera, is, you know, to, to, to continue to create friendships, alliances, and, and even kinship with indigenous organizations, people, communities, and to not treat it as a one-off, but treat it as a lifelong journey. Uh, because when we, when we create these bridges, we learn way more than we ever would you know, watching a movie or reading an article online, but actually creating personal relationships that, like I said, we are all related. We're all relatives. Like we have to start seeing each other as relatives too. I think native people more than anything, we always just want it to be family with the world. Even the first ships that ever came here, what did we do? We fed them, we clothed them, we, we gave them hospitality. You know, that's who we are as indigenous peoples, and we want to have that in return. We want to um, not just have a cold professional relationship, you know, we want to be family with the world. And so I think when people see it that way, then they link arms with us in the trenches as, as family, as, as a lifelong commitment to the liberation of not just indigenous peoples, but the liberation of of non-human relatives too and, and we we act as one and i think that is probably the biggest thing people can do is is start going to native events start like local native events maybe it's a powwow maybe it's a film screening maybe who knows but um if you type in native-land.ca it's a website native-land.ca put in your zip code, it'll tell you whose land you're standing on, it'll tell you which native communities are around you. And we're not extinct, you know, we're right here. And we we want kinship, we want family. And so the way people that I've suggested to people to initiate that is to go to these communities and find the opening to ask, you know, like, how can I help if at all? You know, that's a good icebreaker in terms of building a relationship of solidarity is like, how can I help if at all? 
and they will tell you like, look, this is the project we're working on. We're trying to buy this acreage for this, you know, traditional foods, you know, project. We're trying to help the, the mothers have what they need for their families. You know, who knows what it is, but, and then see if there's any way you could plug in in a, in a small, medium or, or large sized way to, to, to start getting in the trenches with people and, and not saving us, but just working with us towards our common, our common success and our common liberation. Well, that's wonderful practical advice um, and certainly something that anyone listening can do. Uh, I know we're right up on time, so I don't wanna take very much more, but I do want you to know that the, the energy prices um, on tribal lands is a really strong motivator for us. Um, it's really egregious. You mentioned the median income of $20,000 on many tribal lands is three, four times the national average of what electricity costs. Um, and so we're very mindful of that and, and have been working with a group trying to get a solar array on their, their land. But if you do know people that are actively trying to raise capital for projects like the one you described with the indigenous food systems or others, you know, please do have them reach out to us and we're, we're happy to talk to them and explain how maybe we could make it happen for them. All that being said, uh, a lot of wisdom, Lila, and really appreciate your work, your poetry, um, preserving languages and building and sharing wisdom and looking forward to uh, learning more from you and your work and the people you amplify as well. So I just really wanna thank you for your time and uh, wish you a really nice trip <laughs> to Los Angeles and uh, hope to talk again one day, um, perhaps in a collaborative fashion, so. Sounds good, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, totally, and get some rest, huh? Yeah, I will. Oh, actually I won't, but um, <laughs> next month I will. <laughs> yeah, that's, that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, Okay, well, take yes, care. Yes, have a great day. Amazing questions. Thank you for your support, and we'll be in touch. Thanks, Lila. All right, blessings. Bye. Bye-bye. Raise Green Podcast explores the climate crisis through the minds of local leaders and global experts. Short, accessible conversations explore new ways of working together via personal stories about creating a healthy, just, and sustainable future. As economic disparity, environmental degradation, and social injustices continue emerging as defining issues of the 21st century, we need solutions that scale faster than the pace of the problems. These conversations ask how.